Well, when my family and I were in Texas not long ago, one of the things I noticed as we were uh, going along was how many little museums were scattered about. Um, they're all over the place. Museums, little one-room museums showing off this or showing off that. But, but there was one that caught my eye because I thought that uh, the boys would like it, and it was a little Air Force museum. And so we had a, a day that we wanted to put some time in, so we went there, and inside the museum they had all kinds of memorabilia from World War II. Uniforms, they had a training simulator for pilots that was so old it was made of wood. They had a turret from a B-24 bomber and, and other odds and ends. Uh, there was one display that stood out to me. It was from the Pacific Theater, and it was a picture, so in the display, a picture of a bomber, a picture of its captain, who was from the area. There was a folded up Japanese flag and a plaque that had the story behind it. The bomber had landed on an island, and when it landed on that island, the crew disembarked and began their mission to locate and to secure the surrender of a few Japanese soldiers that were still holed up in a cave. Well, according to the story, they found them, and after speaking with them, they surrendered. And the flag that was in the display case was the flag that the Japanese officer commanding this small unit, it was a flag that he surrendered to the captain of the aircraft. Now, in all of that, there's nothing really significant. It happened dozens, if not hundreds of times during World War II. But what made this surrender unique was that it didn't take place during the war. And it didn't happen in 1945 when peace was declared. No, this surrender of this Japanese group of soldiers took place in 1952, seven years after the war had ended. And yet this small group of soldiers, not knowing the war was over, had continued for seven years to raid and to dispute and to terrorize this small island. Well, what finally convinced them to lay down their arms was a copy of the peace treaty. They saw it and they surrendered. But, but can you imagine? Seven years, longer than the war itself, they kept fighting. It was a desperate and a, and a futile effort. No matter what they did, they weren't going to change the outcome of the war because the war was already over. And I read this plaque and saw this, uh, this flag in this case, and I thought, that's exactly what the Christian life is like with the, the war against sin, isn't it? The war is over. It was over 2,000 years ago. Sin, death, devil, defeated. And yet they continue to wage a, a hopeless hateful insurrection. They continue to tempt and to raid and to steal and to cause endless trouble, sometimes great trouble for the believer. Well, for the Christian to endure this, what they need to know above all else is that the war is over. It's won. And that knowing that puts things in their proper perspective, doesn't it? The uncertainty is removed. The hope of victory is secured, and no matter how the enemy postures, he's defeated. Knowing he is defeated, or rather knowing what God has done through Christ, it enables us to better resist temptation and press on to the end. Which is why throughout 1 John, with its, its emphasis on keeping the commandments and, and not sinning, there are numerous reminders of who God is 
and of what he has done. And the first of those, maybe the most important of those that we'll look at this morning, is found in 1 John 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And we'll look at a few verses this morning, but we're going to start here. 1 John 1, 5. You're probably familiar with what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. How would we, we know you apart from what you have told us and revealed to us about yourself? I pray, Lord, that you would write its truths on our hearts this morning, that we would know you better this morning as we leave than when we came in. That, Lord, you would draw us that much closer to heaven, that much closer to your throne, that much more into your presence. Lord, we are reaching for heights that we can't reach on our own, and I pray, Lord, that you would meet with us today and that we would know you. Grow in our love for you. And that our desire to honor you and to glorify you in all things, Lord, that it would be greater now than ever. You are worthy to be glorified. You are worthy to be lived for. And I pray that you would help us to see that and to do it, Lord, with a renewed strength and energy this year. It's in your name we pray. Help me to preach, Lord, and help us to hear. Amen. So much of the Christian life depends on knowing God. And I don't mean you know, being able to recite a bunch of facts about him. And, and I really don't mean either reading the opening chapters of a systematic theology. Now those are important. You can learn about God uh, by studying theology proper. But I'm not talking about what he has done or attributes he possesses. I mean, what do his actions and his attributes say about him? What do they say about his character? Who is God, and what is he like? I mean, this is so crucial. I mean, just, just let me give you an example to explain why. Um, I want you to think for a moment of the most trusted person that you know. Right? You trust them with your life. Now, think back to when you first met that individual. Would you have trusted them then, way back then, like you do now? Probably not. Why? Well, you didn't know them. As time went on, you discovered more about them. You learned about their character, about what they're made of and who they are. And as that happened, the relationship became stronger and your confidence grew and you, you came to trust them more and more intimately and dearly. Well, the same thing happens in our relationship with God. We trust Him, yes, but starting out with an infantile trust, and as time goes on, that trust grows, and new dimensions of God's character reveal themselves to us, and we're greatly helped. And when I say helped, we're not helped because maybe a, a difficult problem we're facing goes away, but we look at that problem in a different way. Just consider the sovereignty of God. Not many new believers have a strong grasp and knowledge about what it means that God is sovereign over all things when they first come to Christ. But when you grow and you come to the realization 
that God is sovereign. What, what does that do to your life, to how you think and how you process things? It begins to change, doesn't it? You realize all the kingdoms of the world belong to him. They're a drop in a bucket compared to him. And he is in total command of them. And every decision they make or direction they lead a country, ultimately it's part of God's plan. When you know that, you're going to think about things differently, aren't you? Or what about something more personal? What about an injury or an illness? God is sovereign over all things, including this. If you know that, then you can say, God has given this to me, a thorn in the flesh, and I, it's painful, I know, but because I know God, it is for my good, and I can rejoice in my affliction. It's one of the pillars of the character of God, one that is over all the rest, and must be remembered, one that we see in Genesis, in creation, and the one we're reminded of here, is that God is good. I mean, you don't want a sovereign God who is not good, do you? No, God is good, and He is good all the time, and He is good in everything that He does. You think, well, we didn't read that God is good. No, but we did read that God is light, and that in Him is no darkness at all. And I think most people, when they hear that, they understand it means God is good. And there is no evil in Him. He cannot do what is wrong. He cannot do what is dark or sinful. He cannot do it. There are things that God cannot do. Sinning is one of them. He can never do anything except that which is good. Well, this forces us to think about God differently than we think about ourselves. It's the right way to think about God. I mean, most of our wrong ideas about God come because we think that He is like us. Our, our ideas of God are, are too human. We think He must reason like I reason. He must see things the same way that I see things, that He loves like us, or on and on. Well, this was His rebuke to His enemies in Psalm 50, 21. You thought I was just like you. He's not like us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he remarks on this, that half of the trouble we face in the Christian life is because we tend to assume we know the truth about God. We assume that all, our, all of our ideas about God are right. But He's not like us. And we ought to be thankful for that. Have you ever stopped to think how praiseworthy God is just because He is good? And in Him is no darkness at all? Uh, just that simple fact is enough to stir us to worship Him in thanksgiving forever. We should be so thankful that that's true. Because imagine, just for a moment, imagine what it would be to live, uh, what it would be like to live in a world with an all-powerful, all-knowing being who was evil who delighted in doing what is cruel. You think about it. All of the evil that the devil has been able to unleash in the world since the fall, or all of the, all of the uh, terror that a tyrant, the whores, they're able to inflict on a nation, and yet they're creatures hemmed in and restrained. What would it be like if they were not? Now, we can't comprehend what the world would be like if the Lord God who ruled it was evil. If He delighted in lying and murder and hatred. You couldn't trust anything. You couldn't trust anyone. I mean, imagine your worst nightmares. They don't even come close to what the reality would be. What would creation be like? I mean, even in its fallen state today, you see the goodness of God all over it. 
how the rain falls, and how the ground yields to our labor, and how families love one another. And though, yes, there are tragedies and catastrophes, unexpected deaths, strange diseases, and tsunamis, the rare, the normal human experience is good. But if God were evil, do you know what kind of monstrosities would roam this world? You, you couldn't go outside without fear of some beast devouring you, and not bears and wolves, but the kind of fantasy nightmare creatures. Any moment you could be struck with a disfiguring sickness. Any moment, unexpectedly, the ground could open up and swallow you without... I mean, you could go on and on and on what it would be like to... Uh, considering what it would be like to live in a world with a malevolent, spiteful God. It would be more horrible than anything you could imagine. But even if God wasn't evil, but just a God who could be evil some of the time, you know, lose his temper and lash out. Well, you could never say all things work for good for those who love the Lord. You could have no confidence that there is a purpose behind your pain. I mean, if God could have bad days, you know, tomorrow he'd be less patient than today. And something you did today he overlooked, but the same thing tomorrow inspired his wrath. You would have no consistency, no confidence at all. Or what if God could lie? Let's say God's mostly good, but he can still tell a lie. Well, what confidence could we have in anything? You might as well take your Bible and throw it in the trash. How would you tell if what was said was true or not? You couldn't. Every promise would be meaningless if God had just the possibility of being able to tell a lie. But because He is light, He is good, He is truth, He cannot lie. And from that we draw great confidence and comfort. And even if God was just mischievous or curious, you know, turn off gravity for a few hours, see what would happen. Laws of physics work one day, they stop the next. Or, or maybe he's going to make all food taste awful today, and uh, you have to eat dirt to survive, and the next day you eat dirt and it makes you sick. <laughs> no, in him there is no darkness at all. He is wonderfully consistent. Wonderfully consistent. And what a message this would be to those ancient people who only know the, the demonic goat gods that demand human sacrifice or the gods of the Babylonians or the Egyptians with their esoteric and dark rituals, or the, the Greek and the Roman gods who could be with you, uh, for you one day and destroy you the next just to get a laugh. Can you imagine what those people thought when they heard, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all? And they realized God is not like all of those other small gods that we've been envisioning. There are no dark recesses in Him. He is all light and zero darkness. And everything He does is good, and He does it with a good purpose, and He does it in a good way. And this means we can trust Him. I mean, we can. When He says things we may not like, things we disagree with, when He permits things to happen that we would never do, or He brings calamity or judgment, we can say to ourselves, God is good, God is wise, God is better in all things than I am, and even though I do not understand why He is doing what He is doing, I don't have to because I can trust Him. And we can trust God in spite of ourselves until we learn to trust Him with everything because God is light. You know, last week we drew a connection between the lust of the eyes and seeing by faith. 
Well, seeing the events of this world through the eyes of faith, one thing that means is seeing them as coming from a good God. You say some pretty bad things happen in this world. They do. If you look at them from just a world's perspective. Let me give you an example. Imagine a man comes, takes my child away from me, knocks that child unconscious, then begins to burn him and cut pieces from his body. Is that a horrific thing? Should I be outraged if that happened and angry at the man? Should I find him and, and rescue my son? Well, that actually did happen to me, and it happened exactly like I said. I was at the hospital. My two-year-old son couldn't breathe well because he had nodes at the back of his nose that were too large, and so the doctor took him away from me, put him to sleep, and cut out his, his adenoids and cauterized the wound. But because I knew he was a doctor, I knew his intentions, not only was I willing but eager to subject my son to this otherwise torturous treatment. And the point is, and the point that we need to remember, is that God is always like that doctor. And if the comparison falls short, and it does, it's because he's better than that doctor ever could be. Everything he does is for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And if it looks cruel to us, or maybe brutal to us, and if it's painful or confusing, it's not because God has lost control or, or lapsed into wickedness. The problem is, is never what he is doing, but that we know so little of it. We are so limited in our understanding. It's like if I were to trying to teach a three-year-old to do calculus. They just wouldn't get it, would they? You can't teach a three-year-old child calculus. It's impossible. You homeschoolers, don't try. <laughs> there are things the mind of an adult can grasp that the mind of a child cannot. Why? Because an adult is more mature, more advanced, wiser than a child. You can teach an adult calculus, most of them. Well, if an adult is able to understand things that a child cannot because of his wisdom and maturity, how much more God over us. If we can make sense of things that a child cannot, because we are more advanced in our thinking and, and in our being than they are, how much more can God make sense of things that we can not make heads or tails of? In everything. If the gap between the capacity of understanding between a child and a, an adult is so great, how much greater the gap between an adult and the Lord God? I mean, I, I, I bet there are times, I, I do believe there are times that even if God told us exactly why he was doing something, we wouldn't understand it anyway. Which is why, when it comes to trusting God, we must humbly submit ourselves to him. Lord, I, I trust, it's like Job, Job is the best example of this. All through the book of Job, Job is saying, you know, God, God needs to tell me why he's done this, and God needs to tell me why he's done this, and, and God, I need answers for what you're doing. And in the end, what happens? Job doesn't get a single one of his questions answered, but God shows up, and when he sees God, he puts his hand over his mouth. What Job thought he needed was an explanation. What Job really needed was a vision of God. And when he got that vision of God, all of his questions were irrelevant. He could trust him. 
And so knowing this about God, it stops us from saying, you know, why is God doing this or that? It stops us from saying, you know, I deserve better. And it stops us from growing bitter towards God over our circumstances. But instead, we see them for what they really are. Divine appointments for God's glory and for our good. You just might not have seen it that way because you didn't see it through faith in a good God. But if you start with an unshakable confidence that God is good, you're not going to look at your circumstances in a way that prompt those woe is me uh, sighs and laments. You'll know that whatever circumstances you find yourself in are from God, and because God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all, you can trust that what He is doing is likewise good. Well, we started in chapter 1, verse 5, because the goodness of God is the essential starting point to understand what God has done for us in Christ. You have to, you have to kind of par out, what could God lie? Is he tr- no, he's trustworthy. He's not going to lie. He's not going to deceive you. Is he really good? Yes, he really is as good as he's about to show himself to be. Knowing God is a starting place for us. This is for the whole book of 1 John. Let's take our next passage. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's writing these things so that we would not sin. What things? Well, the whole book, but especially what immediately precedes it. And what's that? God is light. In him is no darkness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that forgiveness, that cleansing, that comes from God, and it ought to have the effect of making us want to not sin. Do you see how John says that? The goodness of God and the salvation he offers, it, it makes a believer want to not sin, not to go on into greater sin. I remember once I saw a video at church, and I don't, I don't remember how old it was, how old I was, and, uh, and I don't think I'll ever get it out of my mind. I can't find it anywhere I've tried. It's, it's hard to find. But it was, a, it was a little short clip of a child and his father, and, and you could tell how much the father loved the boy, and he was a, a good, he was a kind dad. And, and in this short, maybe three-minute video, the son Uh, The son wants to go fishing, and the father warns him. He says, don't go into this pond. It's dangerous. It's full of alligators. You'll get knocked out of the boat. They'll get you. Well, the son doesn't listen, and he ignores the sign. He's got his his boat, you know, one foot in the boat, ready to push it out. He's got his fishing rod in his hand. He casts it into the water from his boat, and it's not long at all before an alligator comes, knocks the boat over, tips the boy into the water, and he's splashing and thrashing, and you, you can't really tell what's going on. But then you see his dad jump in from the dock and grab hold of the boy, and he saves him. The next scene, the boy is at his father's funeral. and You see the father died trying to save, or not trying to, but saving him. Died saving him from the disobedient thing that he was doing. And I thought, you know, that's the end. It's uh. It's another one of those dime a dozen, you know, meddling quality, uh, middling quality kind of videos about what Jesus has done that were all over the place. You probably saw hundreds of them. But it wasn't the end. The very last scene, there was one more. And the very last scene was the boy again 
and he's back at the same pond, fishing rod in hand, one foot in the boat as he pushes back out to go fishing again in the alligator-infested waters. And I remember seeing that. I said, I can't, I can't believe this. Uh, you know, what's, what's he doing? That's what I was saying. Well, what is this kid doing? He's going back? Doesn't he know what happened out there? Doesn't he know what his father did? Doesn't he care? How can he do that? And I was angry. And I got the point. Understanding what it means to be forgiven and to be saved, to be reconciled to God and, and the cost of that redemption, listen, that does not lead to an apathy towards evil and sin. When you really understand what God has done for you in Christ, a good God has done for you in Christ, it doesn't lead to using grace as a license for sin or careless Christian living. When somebody understands what God has done for them in Christ, it doesn't make them say, well, let me sin all the more so grace may abound. It just doesn't do that. If that's what you think, you don't understand what's happened. It makes you afraid to sin. Not, not for punishment's sake, but for fear to disappoint such a father. Fear to dishonor such a great salvation. I, I mean, there are people who have been so good to you in this life that there are things you would never do just out of respect for them. Right? You, you, you're worried, what would so-and-so think of me if I were to do this? You want to please them. And because you love them and because they've been so good to you, there are certain things you don't do. But when you increase in your knowledge of God and what He's done for you in Christ, and it becomes more and more of a reality in your life, it becomes more concrete and less abstract, you'll find patterns of sin have less and less power to sway and tempt you. So how can I sin against such a father? And yet, what else does the verse say? We do sin. We all do in many ways. You know, you conquer one, another appears, and it's, it's like going back into the boat in the danger-infested waters. When you do that, and you do know that, it's, it can be enough to paralyze somebody with shame, isn't it? I mean, we've all done this at one point or another. If you're a Christian, you have, haven't you? That's what Paul writes about in Romans 7. I don't do what I want to do, and the things I do not want to do, those I do. What a wretched man I am who will save me from this body of death. So what do you do when in spite of your best intentions, you've failed and you've sinned again and you've sinned against such a great God and loving Father? What do you do? Well, finish the verse. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an attorney before the throne of God who can plead our case successfully. We have a defendant who has been successful in every case he has taken up. But, but it's not like courts here on earth where the lawyers use the law to create, you know, create deniability and, and sometimes obscure justice so that even if someone is, is clearly guilty, they can walk on a technicality. No, it's not that kind of advocacy. And in a sense, he really doesn't even defend us. When we sin, it's indefensible. He, he doesn't come with justifications or mitigating factors. Now our advocate, Jesus Christ, he doesn't argue that what we have done doesn't deserve punishment and that we aren't that bad or that we didn't do it. When he stands up on behalf of his people, he pleads guilty for them every time. But then he shows, he proves why God 
must forgive those who are in him. And this is why he is such an advocate. He deals only in the truth. Only in the truth. I mean, imagine you were guilty of a crime, partially culpable, whatever, you're on trial and you're anxious, you know, maybe my defense lawyer will be able to get me off the hook and you don't know. And, and even if you are declared not guilty, your conscience knows otherwise. Even if you do walk, guess what? Your conscience isn't clear. But with the Lord, it's not like that. He stands up before the judge and says, my client is guilty. Here is the evidence. It is undeniably so. But he ought to be forgiven because I was the propitiation for his sins, for her sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. Do you know what that word means, propitiation? It's an old word, an ancient word. We sung about it earlier in the song, Jesus, Thank You. And the word really means literally to appease divine wrath. You see, one of the reasons why you're troubled when you sin is because you know you have done wrong and you actually know that sin means you deserve to die. And I'm not just saying that for effect. Romans 1.32, it says, we know that those who do such things deserve to die. We know what sin deserves. And that death sentence, it hangs over you all the time. It's like a sword tied on a silk thread ready to fall at any moment. And when we think of God's mercy, you know, we think of His grace and we think of His goodness, we, we limit it in ways the Bible doesn't limit it. You know, and we think it means, well, the sword's up there, and he's, but He's not going to cut the thread. You know, He might even protect the thread so that it won't fall accidentally. We can speak about God in accidents. But the sword's still always there, ready to fall. The possibility of retribution remains hanging over us. That's not what happens at all. There is no sword hanging over your head if you're in Christ. There's no death sentence threatening you any longer. Those who are in Christ, God's wrath has been appeased. He has satisfied it in His Son. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus drank down that divine judgment and He suffered not just the, the Romans and the hatred of the Jews, but He bore the curse of God against sin. Not his own sin, he didn't have any, but the sins of his people. And because he did that, there is no wrath left for you. None. And so when God deals with you, deals with the remaining sin in you, and he will deal with it, it is never punitive as a judge or as an executioner. It is as a loving father. That's why John says, Fear has to do with punishment, but perfect love drives out all fear. There is no punishment left for us in Christ. Discipline, yes. Instruction, yes. The rod, sometimes, yes. Punishment, no. And I was listening to a sermon recently. I, I put it online, and some of you may have, may have heard it, but in it, the preacher says, the reason why when you learn about God's holiness in Scripture and His righteousness and His greatness... When you're reading the Bible and you see all of these things about God, the reason why it doesn't fill your heart with joy is because you read it apart from the Gospel. And you see this glorious being who hates sin, and you see the sin in you, and you forget that God has dealt with it forever. And he says, and so you go on to write a song, and it's, you know, you are holy, I am a worm, step on me and watch me squirm. But what does the Gospel do? 
what does it mean that we have an advocate who has appeased all of the wrath of God? What does it mean that your sins are covered? Not partially, no, not nine out of ten, totally and completely covered. It means that when you search the Scriptures and you see this incredible and holy and incomprehensible being, when you see God and who He is, you can read it and you can say, He is for me. He is for me. That's, that's what the Gospel does. It reminds you that this God is for you and He is on your side. And so when you see the Lord descend on, on Sinai with, with dread and the smoke of the fire, you, you can read it and say like the author of Hebrews says, Well, let me read what the author of Hebrews says. He says, For you have not come to that which may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with arrows. Instead, so terrified was the sight that Moses says, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assemble of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see what he's saying? How much the gospel changes your relationship with God? It changes everything. Before, God was a terror to you. A terror to your sin. His voice would make you tremble. And outside of Christ, He is all of those things. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But in Christ, it changes. And now you come to a city on a hill and you're invited to His table. And it's, it's not the trumpet of war, but of a choir of angels singing and And you go in and you're surrounded by all of the faithful witnesses who have come before you and you celebrate together what you are in Christ. That's where you're going. It's a picture the author of Hebrews gives. You see the mountain covered in smoke with the trumpets and the fire and it's as if the gospel of the, the breeze of the gospel comes in as a strong wind and blows the smoke away and puts the fires out and there you see a, a, a city and you're welcomed in with choirs of angels singing and the table set for you. The gospel changes your relationship with God. So listen, when you read about God in Scripture, you have to read it in light of the gospel saying, this God is for me. Yes, he will judge the wicked, and and that judgment is precisely what he has saved me from. So read the Bible in light of the gospel. When you sin, remember, you really do sin, but you also really are forgiven. I mean, this, this will help you. This will help you to go greatly in grace and in truth. You will grow as you are assured of God's love for you. you know, sometimes when you struggle against a particularly thorny sin, maybe some of you made New Year's resolutions. This, this sin in my life, I'm going to put it to death this year. And you think, well, if I can just get past this sin, then I can have assurance If I can just get over this one sin, then I can know that God really loves me and is for me. No, that's backwards. It's backwards because you're trusting in your works instead of trusting in the promises of God. And if you work out your salvation that way, you will never come to assurance and probably won't gain victory over that sin. 
But what you need to know is that your failure is forgiven and your sins atoned for. All of them. If you're in Christ, past, present, future. And that provides a great motivation and confidence to persevere and not sin. I mean, if you fall behind in a race, you become discouraged. You don't want to finish. Right? The task has become too much. I've let it go on for too long. I've let it go too far. Now it's too late. Maybe some of you in your Bible reading plans, it's like that. You missed a day here and there. The end of December comes along when, you, you know, December 31st, you should be finishing. You've got two months left. And you think, well, I'm never going to catch up now. What's the point? Listen, when you fight against sin, you will falter. You will. Nobody has a perfect track record, and if they did, they wouldn't need grace. But if you go into it thinking that your whole walk with God and His love for you depends on your ability to overcome sin, you will become either a miserable, disheartened Christian or a self-righteous Pharisee. But when you know that God will forgive your sins and your stumblings, that gives you the hope to stand back up and persevere, doesn't it? When you lose that hope, you give up. Some of you might be enduring this this very morning. Sinful patterns in your life, and you want new patterns of victory over sin, maybe relating to your spouse or family devotion, courage and witness, and you're, and you're struggling, and you're wondering, well, what's the point? The point is you have an advocate before a good and merciful God who took away your guilt and shame, was propitiated in your place, and who came to destroy the works of the devil, including that sin remaining in you. And you can be sure that he will help you in the fight. He came, we read elsewhere, one of the reasons was to destroy the work of the devil, to destroy the sin in you that grieves you. He came to help you in overcoming it. He is patient with you in overcoming it. He is patient with every warring saint. And if you are wrestling against sin, and I'm not talking to people who go on in sin without a care. If you are wrestling with sin, and you know what it means to wrestle with sin, to struggle against it, to hate it, if you desire to overcome it, you're praying for deliverance, Christ does not see you as an enemy. But as a soldier of the cross, and what soldier does not get wounded in the fight? No, Christ came to forgive you when you are wounded and then bind that wound and return you to the fight, not to mock you when you stumble. He picks you up. He goes with you. So so don't try and do the Christian life without him. And don't think that you have to go on in your own strength to conquer sin before Christ will be with you and draw near to you and be pleased with you. It's backward. Go to God first and be armed by Him to go forward. He will help you overcome the sin that is in you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the greater the sin assaults you, He's greater than that. And He wants you to have victory over it even more than you do. What you say, well, then why is there so much of a struggle? Why do temptations sometimes have the upper hand? Why doesn't He just deal with it once and for all? If that's you, I I have two things. One, you are blessed. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And two, you will be satisfied. One day you will have a righteousness that leaves nothing to be desired. And Christ really will fully and finally take every ounce of sin and corruption away from you and from everything else in all of creation. This life, there is a sense where this life is just the transition to glory. One more verse. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. Presently. And what we will be perfect has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This hope of perfect righteousness that we're looking forward to, this hungering for righteousness, it spurs us on, doesn't it? Our hope drives us not to apathy or to laziness, but to purity. Why? Well, because we want to be what we are. He says, you're children of God. God has made us perfectly holy in Christ. That's our identity. That's our eternity. That's who we are before Him. Nothing can separate us from it. And because that's who we are, that's who we want to be. There's a part of you longing to be that way. Those who have this hope purify themselves as he is pure. It's like an heir to a throne who has been displaced and, and driven out of the kingdom by a supplanter. Maybe a child driven away by his uncle who usurped the throne. And the, What happens when that happens? Well, he is the king and he knows it. And the throne belongs to him by right. What does that create in him? Well, it doesn't create a desire to indifferently wait around for something to happen, does it? You know, it's one of, the, one of the themes in stories throughout history. The throne belongs to him. Somebody's taken it from him. It's his by right. What is he going to do? He is not going to stop until he claims what is rightfully his. Well, if you're a Christian, the righteousness of Christ and his victory over sin and death and, and evil is yours by right. Because you are in Christ. Did you know that? That ought to drive you not to laziness, but to take hold of that righteousness that is yours and to put to death anything that would stand in your way from achieving it. Put to death all of those things that would hinder or hamper or slow you down or dull you or distract you from the inheritance that is yours in Christ. That's why those who have this hope purify themselves. They want to be what they are. Now, what does all of this have to do with the story I told at the beginning of, of a war and a defeated foe? Well, we are at war. Paul tells us over and over, fight the good fight of faith. Wear the armor of God. Every, every Christian is called to this. You know, we've been talking about war against sin for most of this sermon. But often you think, we think this as Christians, that our biggest problem in this life is our war with the world and the flesh and the devil. And we are at war with sin in ourselves, you know, in our, in our thinking. But listen, please, listen to this. Those things were never your greatest enemy. Did you know that? When Daniel preached uh, a few months ago, not in December, but before that, do you remember Romans 1.9? I hope some sermons stick in your mind, at least, at least parts of them. Well, he told us we're all at war. We were born at war. Many of us have lived our lives in war. All of us have lived our lives in war. And I was listening to him, and I'm thinking, yeah, war with the sin and the kingdom of darkness. But do you remember what he said? He said, you are at war, and you were at war with God. God was our enemy. He was the one we arrayed ourselves against. And it's just like in Psalms chapter 2. The nations and the kings and all of us railed against God and against His Messiah. We were at war with God, at war with the kingdom of light, at war against the very righteousness we now long for. That's who we were fighting against. We were fighting against God. That's the war that was won by Christ. 
on the cross, he signed the treaty of eternal peace, and he signed it in his blood, and he made peace between God and man, between you and God. And it's not like the peace that the world knows, but a real peace, a peace without any hostility in it. It's reconciliation and love. And of course, the Christians still are at war. But the greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, has not just been overcome, but become your friend. And now you are fighting on the winning side. It's not like God came and, and won the battle you were fighting. He came and he took you and put you on the winning side. And though our old compatriots are still fighting their guerrilla war and their insurgency against our souls, and they've made themselves a nuisance to the kingdom of God, that's all it is. A nuisance that will never amount to anything. You cannot dethrone him, cannot defeat him, cannot supplant him, it cannot even drive him back. This means that every trial and sin you face is a defeated foe. And so let those truths encourage you, strengthen you to press on all the more urgently after God this year. Resolve to put those lingering sins to death or, or to advance in that area of life that has, has evaded you. you. You know what they are. Be more assured of the promises and the character of God and of His goodness and of His grace that, that He is for you and will be with you. Be more assured of those than you were before. That, that He really has bridged the gap between you and Him and made peace and loves and has forgiven you. That He will destroy the sin remaining in you starting in this life and he who began a good work in you will finish it. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your ways. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you cannot lie, that every word you say is true. Thank you, Lord, that you have transposed us from being your enemies to being your own children, beloved. Thank you that you have placed us on the winning side, shed light abroad in our hearts. Lord, language cannot express what you have done. It, it, it all seems to fall short. Lord, help us to know that you love us. Help us to read your word in light of the gospel. We truly are a desperate people, but you are an all-sufficient God. I pray that you would help everyone in this room to cling to you as if their life depends on it, because they do. Help us to put sins to death that have been lingering, Lord, to resolve once and for all to put them down. Help us, Lord, to love one another. To root out bitterness in our hearts. Help us to know you more. To strive to that end. And Lord, thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Help us to be what we are. And let the hope of being like Jesus drive us, Lord to purify ourselves. It is what we desire. Thank you, Lord, 
that you will one day bring all of these things to pass perfectly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.